I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the Four-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Eric, are you ready to enter the sphere? I indeed I am. Uh, let's let's get in this ball. All right. I uh, I, I will tell you a backstory on this one. Uh, obviously, this episode we are talking about sphere and the 1998 film and uh, the book that it was based off of, which the book was 1987, which I believe makes this the longest distance between book and film adaptation for Michael Crichton, but I gotta double check that as we're talking, so, but I'm pretty sure that this is the one. Which is, which is kind of interesting when you think about the, the changes that have been made from books to movies when there's been space between them, when they, they always try to update the technology, mm-hmm. and I feel that this was one of the times when they did that the least, Yes. I felt that the technology, as described in the book, was virtually identical, actually, to the technology that we see in the movie as far as uh, their underwater habitats and, uh, you know, everything, all, all the tech that they use, essentially. There, there's very, very little uh, additional um, – I, I think the one thing that stood out was when they mentioned – in the book, they mentioned something about the Carter administration, and in the movie, it's changed to the Bush administration. That's the only uh, change, and it's just the Bush administration, not Bush Sr. or Bush Jr., because at the time, <laughs> there was just the one. So true. That is true. That was yes. the only like noticeable updating for date that that jumped out at me. Everything else, I was actually kind of shocked as to, to how close they kept it, just in tech-wise, t- just tech-wise is right, what I'm talking right. about. No. Uh, because um, in other actually, ways— I guess I... I guess I take that back. Eaters of the Dead, the book was written in 1976. I did not realize that was that old of a book. Oh, wow. And then the movie was 99. So that's going to be when we the Eaters of the Dead episode, uh, 13th slash 13th Warrior, that will be the one that is um, the furthest apart from it. So this one wasn't as bad because Congo also uh, was 25 years or 15 years, I mean, because it was written in 80 and then 95. So I guess this wasn't still. You are right, though. I mean, you are. we're talking a decade has gone by between when he wrote the movie or wrote the book and then the movie adaptation Mm -hmm. so it is very interesting that there are so many similarities that didn't change drastically you know uh, or anything like that 
Uh, a little bit of backstory on this. This was the first Michael Crichton movie adaptation I saw in the theater. I remember very specifically seeing this. It had, I, I want to say it was beginning of summer, like April, May, for those of us in Arizona in 98. And I remember seeing it at the Superstition Mall Dollar Theater <laughs> with my brother and us, uh, like, deciding to go see a movie together. And this is what I saw. And I remembered loving this movie. Um, for the fact that it did not have any aliens in it, where if you watch the trailer, like you very much sort of think there's going to be aliens, but it was this psychological thriller was more what it was, and I loved the sci-fi aspect of it, and it had time travel, and it had a spaceship, and it had exploration in this unknown a thousand feet underwater. Like this was this was like every movie I ever wanted, and so I immediately had to read the book afterwards, and then I realized how much better the book was. <laughs> not that the movie was horrible uh, by any means. There are worse adaptations out there for sure, um, but then I realized oh my god there's so much and the, we'll have to wait towards the end of this episode to talk about the ending but the ending of the book i think would have totally changed up versus the ending of the movie uh, as far because this was a flop of a movie i think it did uh 50 million dollars in the box office and it had like an 80 million dollar uh, budget so this movie was a complete flop for the uh, producers who decided they wanted to try and win a little bit of jurassic park money or something yeah, they were definitely uh, doing doing some grabbing. Um, I, I, upon rewatching this film, I did not dislike it as much as I remembered disliking it. <laughs> this was one of those <laughs> okay. movies that I, I believe I did see this one in the theater as well, and I don't know. I, <clears throat> I can't recall if I had read the book or not. I believe I had read the book, um, and maybe that is why I was disappointed in the movie because I remember leaving this movie thinking that was garbage. And then mm. uh, upon rewatching it, I was like, okay, you know, it's not it's not a great film by any objective standard, but it wasn't awful, awful either. Um, it, it, it did have some moments. Um, the casting was fantastic. The acting was really good. Um, it's just, I think really when you contrast it to the book is when it really loses something. Because the, the changes that they did choose to make, especially with it being really, really true to the book for the first 45 minutes to an hour i would say even the first i want to half stop of the you movie. right there what's that between the movie and the book the character that i wanted most in the movie was rose levy the well. navy cook <laughs> i loved in the book when they're talking about all their favorite meals of the strawberry short and like very specifically in the book it talks about the different desserts that uh, norman is eating and yep. i thought oh man they cut the cook out and i really wanted to see the cook in the movie so anyway sorry yeah, I, 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 I will agree that with in. that um once again <laughs> we have a situation where some characters have just been omitted entirely for uh, seemingly no reason. There's really no reason to omit the cook. And yeah, the conversation about the desserts, especially because I found out that Ted and I share a favorite dessert, uh, key lime pie. So, key lime pie. Um, but yeah, yeah. And they were talking about how they could have all these desserts and she was a wizard at making these foods in this weird uh, environment that normal cooking doesn't apply to. They even talk about at one point uh, these scientists looking at her cookbook and thinking it was incomprehensible. Um mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the talk about how they could have the strawberry shortcake, but they couldn't have the whipped cream because there's no way in that pressurized uh, exotic gas environment for the cream to actually take up the air necessary to to become whipped. So they're like, well, you can't have everything. <laughs> After that big, yeah. long conversation about all these things she could make, she's like, oh, you had to bring up whipped cream, didn't you? 
Yes. <laughs> well, and, and at least when they did cut, they did cut those smaller characters. I and mean, we obviously, for the death count, had to have some of the Navy um, officers in there, uh, the Navy personnel. But they did cut out more of those smaller characters. We did still have uh, Teeny, the uh, um, the maintenance girl, and everything. But all that was one of those things that there's just there's a lot of science in the book that obviously you can't really explain too well in the movie. In both the book and the movie, though, Norman Johnson's character I loved because I feel like he is us. Like, he's the guy that he's a psychologist, so he doesn't really know the science and stuff. So he's asking all these scientists these questions, and then that's kind of explaining it to us. It's it's written very differently from other um, Michael Crichton books to where it's not as uh, preachy, I guess, if you want to say it. Where yeah, this you... one, you know, you you're not having Michael Crichton tell you the science behind everything. Like Michael Crichton's this really smart guy. You're having this Norman Johnson character ask for you and then it's getting explained. Yeah, it's really a lot more. You still get that exposition as far as here's, here we're going to drop some science on you. You're going to get a little bit of knowledge about how this exotic gas environment works and how the the pressurization works and how once you're in there and pressurized, then you can actually go out into the water. Um, and you'd actually, in the book, they even described, like you'd be able to go out into the water without a suit if it wasn't so darn cold. <laughs> you know, because it's it's cold is why you need the suit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, more than more than for the for you know, pressurization or anything like that, and so you get that science. But again, it doesn't come across as this sudden narration coming in to tell you all about it. It is based on a a more of a layman because you have this this psychologist who's yes, he's he's a smart guy, he's a doctor and everything, but he's not one of these uh, hardcore scientists. So some of these more technical details he wants explained to him because it's and it makes sense for him to be asking because it's going to directly affect him instead of it just being a, well, this person wouldn't care, so why are they asking just so that we can get this science? No, it makes perfect sense for him to be asking. Right. And also, the bits don't seem to go on as long as as some of <laughs> his previous books. Like, to get the into the science. The explanation of science bits, yes. Yes. <laughs> it, it goes much more quickly, it's more succinct, and it gets the information across without ever taking you out of the story. Um, I definitely think this is one of the better written books in that regard. You you get that science, you you learn something while telling a story, and it's a good story too. Um, mm-hmm. And you're never you're never bored by the science of it. You're never taken out of the moment of the story by the science of it, which I find very interesting. Right. And while we did cut characters um, from the book, we kept names for all the characters as the same. It was Teeny Fletcher and Jane Udmans and Norman Johnson and Harry Adams and Beth Halpern and Ted Fielding. And, you know, the names were all the same, at least. So we did keep that going for us. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of the few times that we see, uh, I didn't really have, as far as little things, I didn't find my normal question mark change. Right. Um, everything that I, you know, there's some big changes that I have questions about, but not little <laughs> piddly stuff like, no. you know, why is the city in a different state all of a sudden? <laughs> or, you know, uh, nothing like that. I didn't notice anything, nothing that caught my mind, my eye anyway. Um no. So I, I don't know if you caught something that maybe I didn't that you had a question on. But uh, for me, I didn't have any of those little just weird question mark changes this time around. No, no, I didn't. I, mine were more, like you said, the larger, like, why did we do this? And also um, an upset over, man, 
did he have to die that way? Specifically talking about Ted. <laughs> I did not realize till I rewatched this just uh, last week that that was Lee Schreiber that um, played that character. I completely had forgotten about the fact that, and I completely forgotten that Queen Latifah was a teeny in this. You know? Yeah, when she showed up on screen, I was like, "What? Wait, Queen Latifah's in this? I did not recall that at all. Not at all. And I will tell you, I do believe this was an amazingly great cast film because Lee Shriver, I mean, he played that Ted part exactly how I imagined it reading. And Samuel L. Jackson played that Harry part so well. My favorite scene is when he's so straight faced and abruptly talks about how none of them make it because he knows you can't change time and obviously they must all die because nobody knew about this spaceship and time travel and everything and he's just and he's just like he's just so matter of fact about it and he's just like you know we're you know we're not getting out of here right I mean, you, and, you realize that, yeah? <laughs> and it's, good night, Norman, and he shuts off his light and goes to bed. It's, like, just matter-of-factly. And, unfortunately, they didn't don't show it in the movie, but in the book, you know, they talk about how he's uh, wanting to write his will and finalize some stuff in his will almost immediately because he knows what's going on. And I will say that the Harry Adams in the book was uh, so much better at the reveal and at the keeping stuff to himself, but he immediately sees what's really going on, even from the very beginning when they're topside and just learning about stuff. Um, there are things that get called out yeah. from the Navy officer that I just love it. But I do believe they all played these parts really well. I think Dustin Hoffman was great as this psychologist, this Norman Goodman guy. Yeah, I, I felt that, uh, honestly, I actually liked Dustin Hoffman's version of Norman better than... I really read the Norman in the book, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the one thing that I really thought, you know what? I think Dustin Hoffman did this better than than the actual character in the book was written. Um, yeah. One of the few, few examples where I think the movie got something even better than the book. But, yeah, Dustin Hoffman nailed it, absolutely. Um, I was a little upset. I felt that they made the uh, the Halpern character a little weaker in the movie, than she was in the book, and I'm not quite sure why they chose well, to do she's, that. Me either, and she was very much so described in the book as being uh, muscly and everything like that. She was not really beautiful, especially in the beginning of the book, you know, before the sphere and everything. And they do describe it that way, and because they're setting her up as she's this, you know, person who has been living in universities and getting her work stolen from her, and she's a female in a very male-oriented environment. So she just, you know, had to bulk up, and she's kind of mean, uh, and she did not come across that way. I mean, she had the attitude, but definitely not the physical look or anything yeah, to and, what and, I thought and I'm of. not even so concerned about the, the musculature and, and that because Sharon Stone is a, is a fairly well-built woman and I think you know the fact that she, most of the time she was in a jumpsuit anyway you know you don't really see that I just felt that the character seemed a little weaker like it, it hmm. seemed like she broke up a little bit quicker and more easily um, you know in the book I felt that she was one of the ones that held out the longest as far as uh, starting to crack up Whereas in the movie, they made her out to be this person who had, you know, at the very beginning, they're interviewing her. And she's like, well, you know, you know, do you, do you take any drugs? She's like, well, you know, you know maybe, maybe, maybe a part of his headaches every now and then, you know. And it's like, that's, that's not the character mm-hmm. from the book. The character in the book would have been like, yeah, I'm on two milligrams of Xanax every four hours as needed. For, you know, she would have been like, matter of fact, like, this is what I'm on. Deal with it if she was on something. It wouldn't right. have been a roundabout, yeah, occasionally I pop a Xanax, you know. But who doesn't? I mean, come on, really, guy. You know, like, she, just right from that moment forward, I felt like this is a weaker Beth than we saw in the book. Um, 
and I thought that continued pretty much throughout the movie as far as uh, the character just, you know, everybody cracks up a little bit in this in this story. I mean, even Harry, who is the, the coolest and calmest amongst them, um, he does end up cracking up. And that's that's I mean, that's the story. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that when it comes right down to it, no matter what type, that, that's what I think is great about this story is you have this eclectic group of people. And it's even described in the book that that's exactly what Norman intended was that it should be an eclectic group of people because in his experience, the more eclectic the group, the better they do in stressful situations. However, this shows that when those stressful situations are not coming from someone else's imagination, but from the imagination of the people in that group, it doesn't matter who the group's made up of, they're going to break. And that's, I think, where that's the story as far as as I interpreted it. But I do think oh. it's very interesting. We see like these scientists who, at first glance, have similarities, but personality-wise are polar opposites, uh, especially between like Ted and Harry are the perfect examples. You have Ted who wants to be right about everything and let you know about it immediately to the point of doing the I told you so's and making bold assumptions up front so that later on he can say I told you so um, and even to the point of claiming that he said things that maybe other people had said first and maybe not even realizing it, maybe not even realizing that he didn't originate that idea, that he heard it and then said it and then went back later and said, see, I said, and they're like, well, you said after she said, what, what are you talking about? Whereas you have the right. polar opposite in Harry where he's like, he gets it right away and then so, sits on it. So that later he can do the big reveal and be like, ba-boom. Um, I told you. Yeah, and like, I didn't tell you. I knew, but I didn't tell you. Ha-ha. <laughs> uh, so they both come off as kind of dicks, but in completely different ways. <laughs> well, yeah, because like you said, Harry is very is a much quieter person. And Ted, I mean, he's childlike almost. Like, this is exciting to him. He's that morning person that annoys the crap out of you. I just want my coffee <laughs> quiet and in peace. And he's just going on in, in the book. Right. And and I, I think that that's probably, transitionally, I think that character from book to movie was very much so the same. I agree that I think Dustin Hoffman's character was better. Um, I think Samuel Jackson's character was pretty right. But you are right. I, um, the much weaker character because uh, Halpern didn't break down till the very end of the book. And you're right. Sharon Stone was played off because even the um, uh, captain, he's questioning Dustin Hoffman on why he allowed Elizabeth Beth to be here because of all these past things that he knew about her. And then they had a past relationship, which is totally different from the I, book. I was about and, to say, I, yeah. I was going to ask, did I miss that in the book? Because I don't recall them having a past relationship or her being his patient. No, never. And the only thing that there was anything that uh, Norman Goodman knew about Beth was that Beth did have some of her uh, work stolen from her from a professor that she was living with at the time and sleeping with while she was a student. But it was never his character or anything. So there was this yeah. awareness that was happening and Norman knew about that. And that's why she was the person she was today. But that it extra him. stuff got yeah. added and it didn't it didn't add anything to the story at all. Not at all. Yeah, that's I was I was watching again. And I was like, did I miss that in the book? Did they gloss over it? Or is this made up whole cloth for the film? And and yeah, it is. Um, Once again, an example, I think, of Hollywood trying to inject a love story where it doesn't need to be. You know, not every film has to have a love interest 
That's not a requirement right. of every single story. You know, there's not a magic formula that says, okay, you have to have X number of minutes of action, X number of minutes of love scenes, X number of minutes of exposition, X number of minutes of comedy. It doesn't work that way. Just tell me a good story. And I don't care if it's 120 minutes of pure action or if it's 118 minutes of talking and two minutes of action. If the story's good, I'm going to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... I feel like they try to shoehorn stuff in that doesn't need to be there all too often, and I think that was an example right there. No, and I think it's a perfect example of something that did not build anything story-wise or add anything to it. Um, now, the other—so I guess I could see this from a budget standpoint. I really, really was bummed that we didn't get some amazing close-ups of the um, the squid, of the octopus. Because technically, that's what really kills everybody in the book. The and, squid, yeah. But we fire, I get, it's cheaper from a budget standpoint if everybody's got to die from it. I really, really, really hated the fact that that's how Ted died. I, I, I knew watching this movie that Ted dies, and yet I still didn't want him to die because I really <laughs> loved his character. Uh, so that, that, that did suck. Um, I guess let's jump right to it, though. I want to talk about the biggest upset for me and that was the end of this we have two in my opinion very different endings Absolutely, because yes in the book it felt like you're being set up to get more story not necessarily a sequel but for there to be more details you could later find out i a hundred percent believe after reading the end of the book that beth kept the power Oh, 100%. I, and I believe and, that and she's that is, the only one that did. I believe the yes. other two gave it up. But mm-hmm. I believe she realized that it was kind of one of those, like, uh, what do they call it? The Thieves' Dilemma or Prisoner's Dilemma, something like that, where if, you know, you're kind of like that, that game show, Friend or Foe, you know, where, you know, you have to decide, like, if you both say friend, then you both win a little bit. If one person says friend and one person says foe, the person who says foe wins everything. But if both people say foe, nobody wins anything. And I kind of feel it was that type of situation (coughs) where if two of them had tried to do it, it wouldn't have worked. If all three of them had tried to do it, it wouldn't have worked. It only worked because either two of them, either only one kept it or none of them kept it. And I fully 100% believe that Beth kept that power. Mm-hmm. Because I believe it was each of their own subconscious. And so because they can create, create things from their subconscious, th- both of them could create the idea that it never happened. But I, she kept it because she wanted it. And I loved that for an ending because it left you with something to, to discuss. Where in the movie, suppose I mean, you pretty much think they all three did. Now, technically, it was only um, Hoffman and Jackson's characters that were like, well, why are you holding my hand type of thing? And I don't think Sharon Stone <laughs> said anything. But then we see this little sphere orb fly up out of the ocean and shoot off into the sky. Yeah, we see the sphere depart the Earth, which obviously, um, you know, at some point in the future it has to do in order for it to be found in space, you know, later on, you know, just time travel and and whatnot. At some point it has to uh, get itself back out into space, but we really didn't need to see that happen, (laughs) and we didn't need to see it happen so cheesily. While we're talking about that, though, I do want to address the drastic changes made to the sphere itself. Now, I understand that they changed the coloring of the sphere because it appeared better on film. That I understand. Um, You know, I had heard that originally they did try to make it the kind of gunmetal gray chrome, you know, slightly reflective, uh, you know, futuristic looking silver type of thing that that's described in the book. 
but that it didn't appear on film very well. That when they filmed mm-hmm. it, it was it just came off as a big black marble. And so they're like, this doesn't look cool. Let's change it up a bit. And they went with the kind of goldish champagne type of color. That's fine. I'm okay with the color change. I'm not okay with them changing the nature of the sphere itself, though. The fact that it doesn't, in the movie, technically have an interior. It never opens and allows anyone inside. In the book, the sphere opened visibly. And you were, and the, the people, as they went into the sphere, they went inside the sphere. And the inside of the sphere is even described as looking like millions of fireflies dancing around inside of it. I mean, it was very, very interesting. Uh, you know, they described these deep grooves. They described them as deep. You know, one of the characters actually puts his hand in the groove of this thing, indicating where the actual opening is going to be. And that each time it opens and somebody goes in and comes out, the grooves change. I thought that was amazingly interesting, and I have no idea why they changed that to just, okay, it looks like, you know, some squiggly lines moving around on the sphere, and, oh, it doesn't reflect you unless it wants to. You what, mate? Which, that, yeah, well, and that was kind of, I did like that, actually. I liked that it didn't reflect you unless it wanted to, and the only reason I liked that was because it was Norman's character that said, tell me... I'm not surrounded by scientists, and I'm the only one that notices that this isn't reflecting any of us. Like I did like that line in the movie, but it did make right. for like, a good line. It, I won't it deny that. It made for a good line, but then when like Samuel Jackson, when he first quote unquote opens it, like he goes into the sphere, or whatever, it's more like his soul or something is shining up into the sphere, and he gets sucked into it, or you he, see, yeah, he they does show his reflection disappear, and his reflections riding up the sphere it was a very strange it was a like weird effect <laughs> effect yeah yeah like at first like when the reflection first comes into focus it's it's like his reflection was coming up from the underneath the surface and like breaking the surface of the sphere and that was mildly interesting mm-hmm. and then it like started just like gliding up over the top of the sphere and i'm like what <laughs> yeah and so that's where it very much so lost me because I believed in reading the book that all these millions of little dots, these fireflies, the swarm that they talked about, that like, oh, that's what the aliens look like from that. Because one of the things Michael Crichton actually had said was that um, you don't know where to start because the idea of a story about contact with superior intelligence is very hard to do if you think about it because most writers make aliens recognizably human. Even if it's a big monster, it wants to eat you or it's cute and cuddly and it'll probably want to hug you. You know, it's all human-like. And so I thought to myself, man, he just created these millions of dots, but he left it completely open-ended to whether are those, is this entire civilization in the sphere? Is that anything at all? Or is this just a travel to age? It gave you an alien without giving you any details about it, which is really neat, which is what he says about with this book, is this book was not about the aliens. It was about how the people responded to it. So he didn't care in this extreme situation. What did he say? I didn't really want to spend too much time challenging the extreme situation itself to say how realistic it is. What I was trying to do with the book was say, what would people do when they're confronted as a premise with these possibilities? Yeah, I thought it was very open. In the book, you, you don't – there's no explicit saying – this is an alien sphere. There's no, no there's, n- at no point is it explicitly stated that, okay, you know, there's one point where Ted thinks he knows where the black hole was that caused them to go back in time and end up, you know, 300 years prior to the events of the book. And that's, but that doesn't necessarily mean they know where the sphere came from. For all we know, this could have been a man-made sphere sometime way in the future. And maybe they decided it was too powerful. It was to, you, it was something that couldn't be controlled. So they said, okay, well, you tell you what we're going to do. We're going to send this back in time and bury it to where it will never be found. 
mm-hmm. or we'll, what we'll do is we'll send it into a black hole and then nobody has to worry about it. Well, instead of just going into the black hole, it gets thrown back in time and ends up back on Earth. You know, it leaves it open to interpretation as to whether or not this even was alien. And then again, if it is alien, is it just an alien object? Is it some sort of device? Is it an alien? Is it a bunch of aliens? Um, It's left very, very open because we never, no one ever interacts with the aliens if they are. Everyone's only interacting with their own subconscious or or the other's subconscious. Yeah, which is what, uh, which is one of the things I really love about this. I, I love the fact that, as a premise, Michael Crichton started the story back in the '60s as a companion piece to the Andromeda Strain, which I think is so great that he wanted to build on that more. You know, I mean, both of these were dealing with spheres and dealing with this alien entity and how people would react with something that they don't understand. Um, you know, and he just didn't know where to go with it. And that's why we didn't get the book till the eighties, but he had started the story back in the sixties as a companion piece to the Andromeda strain. So I feel like if we, if, you know, they dig deep enough into everything that he's got left and all his documents, there's probably a third one out there. There's like, there's gotta be like, I feel like you want to make this like series on <laughs> alien life in the sphere whole concept. I, I, I really love it. I I do like that they talk about, uh, you mentioned Ted finds out where the black hole is at just outside of our um, solar system. And they they talk about how when you get near that black hole, one of the things that could happen is that you skip. And this is such a small part of the book, but it just gets your my mind fascinated where as you get closer, you skip like a stone skipping over a lake. And so you're skipping through space time and they talk about that. And so this ship, because they never say whatever happened to the 20 people on the ship, which that's another big difference we have to talk about. Mm -hmm. But they say that there's all this food on there. So obviously the ship was sent out with people. So it's quite possible the ship was bouncing through different time travel and people left or got on the shift at different times but it kept bouncing through and then finally this is where it end landed when everybody else was gone or dead because it was on autopilot because it was a robot in the seat not an actual body that's where my personal theory comes in that i think that the final jump or skip <clears throat> through time that ended up landing it uh, on earth in the past was a last ditch effort to get rid of the sphere they were like you know what we need to, this thing is is tearing us apart. We are killing ourselves with the power that of this sphere. Whether they realized what it was doing, you know, whether they got to that stage or not, they realized we got to get rid of this thing. So they put it on autopilot, sent it into the black hole, and said, "See you later." Um, and that and then it just ended up back on Earth. That's why when we find it, there's a mannequin or a robot in the pilot seat. No people, no nothing, but it's still full of stuff because they were just like, "Just get it out of here. Just get it out of mm-hmm. here now." I would mm-hmm. love if that is, you know, that's just my personal theory. Again, there's no direct evidence, um, just the, the happenstance of, like I said, the, the situation that we see. But if it was, I'd love to see the story leading up to that. I'd love to see, you know, the story of this sh- this fully crewed ship going out into space, and maybe they get sucked into the black hole. Maybe they go in on purpose, you know, whatever, and then they find this sphere floating around in space and say, ooh, this is cool, and then things start happening and then they end up having to you know they figure out that it's the sphere that's doing this we got to get rid of it and they fire it off into the black hole on autopilot that would be an interesting story as well i think yeah no and that's and that's where i don't know maybe you and i need to just write our fan fiction on sphere (laughs) and that's what we need to do now because they're and that's what i love so much about this 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 is probably one of my top 
books. Um, you know, not my favorite movie, but for sure top books because it deals with so many of those stories that still get me today as far as time travel and outer space and aliens and things like that without actually talking about any of them, you know, which is what's so fascinating to me is it's all in my head. Right. This is really just a piece about people and how they deal with each other in extreme situations. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a stress test, essentially, of these characters, very similar to the ones that uh, Norman is talking about having done to other people as part of his, his research in psychology. You know, mm-hmm. to, he talks about, you know, telling people they're going somewhere to do a research study, but actually the research study is on the way there when they're all on a bus and they have the, the driver faint a heart attack and they have to figure out how, you know, they're out in the middle of nowhere and they have to figure out what to do. Um, or they're on a plane and they, they feign that the pilot has a heart attack and they got to figure out what's going, you know, they put these th- them through these stressful situations that they're not expecting um, to test how they react. And that's where you find, that's where it gets this information that a diverse group is better at handling stress than a group consisting of all the same people type of people um and i found it interesting that he said that a group that was put together for a different purpose did the worst when something else happened and i think that makes a lot of sense i don't know if that's based on any actual uh psychological studies i have to imagine you know knowing crichton and how he writes that it probably is based on mm-hmm. some study somewhere but that makes perfect sense to me. When you have a group that's dedicated to one thing, you know, he mentions a championship basketball team in the book. But you have a group of people that's dedicated to this one thing. They're focused on this one thing and something else happens. They're not equipped to deal with that because they've spent so much of their time focusing on this one other thing. And they're all focused on that one same thing. So there's not the diversity of thought necessary to deal with something outside of that. And that makes perfect yeah. sense to me, I think. And I, I so I would be – it's very interesting to me, I think, that they brought that up as part of the the research that he's doing. And then this almost becomes – you almost think that if this is an alien life form, that they're doing the same thing to us. This is their version of those tests that he was doing to people. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's – and that's what this comes down to is this was sort of an ultimate test of these people and something that in the end, obviously, nobody ever knows about. And the sphere goes back and the timeline continues on and, um, you know, nothing changes at all. But it's a test of these people and how they react in this diverse situation. I know the thought in one of the tests was sending people up on an airplane and that the, you know, the pilot has a fake heart attack and then they have to figure out how to land the plane. And I'm like thinking to myself, man, I don't know what I would do in some of those uh, harsh tests. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's tough to think about because you'd love to think that, okay, I'd be, you know, I'd be calm and collected and, you know, start trying to find out who, who knows how to fly a plane, you know, start asking. But, you know, in the reality of the situation, would you, or would you be like, Oh crap, we're going to die. Um, so yeah it's 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 very interesting to think about and yeah the characters in this story are so well put together and we learn so much about them not just from how they're described but then how they react to these situations and the things that they create for themselves um as far as you know their their fears essentially manifesting because of the sphere and so you got to think if this is a if this is a test if this is a test by by alien life forms to find out it's like okay is this is this species worth contacting well let's send out the sphere let's see how they do if they 
kill if they kill themselves or kill each other, then we don't <laughs> we don't go there. <laughs> right. If they manage to figure it out and and survive and uh, you know figure out how to handle the the power that they're given by this fear, then we we contact them. And mm-hmm. so it, that's another reason that I fully believe that Beth kept the power because I believe that if that was a test, then Harry and Norman passed. Because they realized what was happening and realized that they couldn't control that and they needed to give it up. And they did. And I think if all three of them had done it, then maybe we would have seen contact after that. Because they'd have been like, okay, well, you know what? Maybe this species does have the capability of turning its back on this ability, knowing that it can't deal with it. And so they may be worthy of contact. But because she didn't, they're like, well, no, guess not. (laughs) No, and so they, yeah, they never ever visit our planet or whatever it was. No, I, I completely agree with you, and I, I love that from the psychological standpoint of it, which is probably why, um, I don't know, I just loved all characters in this, but I really, really loved uh, Norman Johnson's character and how he questions everything and how he has to deal with because by the end, all of a sudden, he's the smartest one in the building because he's got to keep everybody alive by keeping all of them under control. And before he realizes that, you know, Jerry, this alien being, is actually the subconscious of Harry, he thinks he's trying to keep Jerry happy so Jerry doesn't get mad, you know, so he's really the protagonist that's trying to save everybody. Yeah, that that moment when uh, Norman reveals to the rest of them, they're like, okay, do you, do you guys understand why it's such a problem that he's happy? Like, everybody else is like, oh, good, he's happy, great. And Norman's looking at it like, ooh, that's not good. This is not Because, yeah. sure, he's happy now, but that means he has the capability of being not happy. <laughs> right, and, and what and, happens you know, when he's mad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, uh, Hoffman did a fantastic job, and that scene especially is one of my favorite. When he's standing there and they're talking, and everybody else is like, uh, "Oh, he's just like he's acting like a little kid," uh, and he's like, "Yeah, he is. He's acting like an emotional little kid, and that scares the piss out of me." Because mm-hmm. what happens when he gets mad? And we're led to believe that. But see, that's the thing is, I, I don't believe that they were ever interacting with the sphere itself or with an intelligence within the sphere, whether it be singular or multiple. They were only ever interacting with each other's subconscious. Um, and I think, uh, as as Beth points out at one point, I think that Jerry may not have been just Harry's subconscious. I think it may have been, um, you know, sometimes Harry, sometimes Norman. And even sometimes Beth. Sometimes Beth, yep. And, or it could have been, you know, some part of all of them at the same time because they're all imagining talking. And I'm sure they're all imagining, you know, when you're when you're talking to someone, you don't know what they're going to say next. What do you do? You think, what might they say next? And if you start, if any one of them who'd been in the sphere starts thinking about what Jerry might say next, then it might happen. (laughs) So uh, once they'd all been in the sphere, I think uh, Jerry became the, the, you know, the monster that was an amalgamation of all of their subconscious, which made it 10 times worse because now they're all scared, not only of the sphere and of Jerry, but now they're, once they realize what's happening, they're even more scared of each other. And that makes them paranoid and that makes them turn on each other. You know, they're trying to put each other out with drugs because they think, Oh, if I, if I put you out, then uh, everything goes, everything's normal. And it works at first because they think it works. When they first put Harry out, they think it works. 
Ah, and that's I had why not it worked. thought about that. That's why it worked because they thought that it worked. Exactly, and it that's, was their that's subconscious. the power. Oh, it's so weird, um, and that's what makes it such an interesting story because you know they're they're they are convinced that they were right um, until little clues start to come up, and they're like, oh, "Wait a minute!" But it could have been this, and as soon as they start imagining that it could be something else. It is something else. It is something else. Oh man, that's the power I of the sphere. It's crazy. About that, but yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's what makes this story so intriguing. Is you can think of a million different ways that you could go with it. Um, and yeah, I, I would love to explore uh, more story beyond. Um, you know, because in in the book, we're kind of led to believe that the explosives maybe destroyed the sphere or buried it to where it could not be retrieved ever mm-hmm. but obviously we know at some point in the future this sphere has to exist again and outside of uh, outside of the the earth's ocean um so what does it do does it just teleport itself is it something that you know these hundreds of years into the future it gets shaken loose by an earthquake or something and that's where it gets found and eventually attempted to be shot into a black hole or you know that to me, the guessing of that is much more interesting than what they did in the film, which was just to show the sphere pop up out of the ocean and leave, much and leave. to everyone's utter amazement. And the the only bad acting in the film, I think, when they're watching the sphere and they're <laughs> that navy guy <laughs> the watching navy guy. the sphere go, <laughs> oh, yeah. it doesn't make any noise, but that's the look on his face. No, yeah, that's the look on his face, and it's just this. It it's a horrible end scene, and even not not well done CG, and so it just so took away from the ending yeah, it of it. Does not hold up. Uh, the, the CG on up. that scene does not hold up at all. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just and totally unnecessary. Like that little piece of closure wasn't necessary because it was never given in the book. There wasn't a hundred percent closure. We don't know what happened, other than at some point in the future they find this sphere again, and we know we're doomed to repeat this because they chose to forget what happened and not warn anybody because they couldn't because they already knew that it was a quote unquote unknown event. Um, so that's right in all the data logs. So somebody in the future in twenty forty two or twenty forty seven or wherever it was gets on that ship and, and they, they send it off towards that black hole. They and... always assume that it's 2043, too. And I, I thought it odd that none of them ever thought to guess maybe it was 2143 or 2243. Like, nobody ever guessed higher than 21 or 2043, 20. which I no, thought was interesting. I don't know if that's just... I don't know if that was intentional on the part of Crichton to, to look at... Be, you know, another example of where people's uh, biases show. They they don't want to think any further into the future than, you know, that's just 100 years into the future is enough. You know, 120 years, 130 years, whatever it may be, is is more than enough uh, for us to to think that this is possible. But maybe it was further than that. No, that's I mean, I just did it. I, you know, I just strictly assumed that, oh, yeah, that's, you know, uh, for when the book came out, you know, 60 years in the future when we do this. Well, no, you're right, though. That could have been 2342 when the ship actually left. It's good to be that they're in a ship that's 350 years from the future. And um, 
That's very true, and that's just left open-ended to what you think. But that does go to the way that we think as people. We don't ever think about what the world's going to be like 300 years from now or anything like that. I mean, I personally don't. I'm very excited about the fact that I'll be alive for the year 2050, and that's really cool. I won't be alive for the year 2100, but it's neat to think that my kid will be. But I don't think at all about what the world will be like in 2200 or 2300. So nothing can happen there in my imagination, in my mind. So you tell me 42, I think 2042. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just a natural hmm. jump. Um, I just thought it was interesting that among that group of scientists, nobody suggested it. But again, I, I wonder if that was intentional on Crichton's part yeah. to to illustrate that exact same bias, even within the scientific community. Mm-hmm. So, of all of these characters in here, then what? Who is your favorite character from the book? Favorite character from the book? Um, ooh, that is a tough one. Um, Definitely, I can tell you who wasn't my favorite is Ted, because Ted got oh. way too whiny, way too quick. There were too okay. many times when he was just being whiny. And uh, Harry too often came off as a know-it-all. The, the way he would, it annoyed me the way he held stuff back. The way he insisted, like when he when he had <clears throat> cracked the code, um, which we now know was... Of course he cracked the code. He manifested the code he in his own code, subconscious, right. so of course he was going to be the one to crack it. But the fact that he took you know, half an hour to explain how he cracked the code instead of just saying, here we go, we can talk to him now. You know, yeah. and then maybe later being like, yeah, I figured out something, you know, I figured out with the with the sphere and the swirl and the reflection, you know, hey, you know, it, it makes sense. And look, it works. Um, no, he had to go on like a, you know, 10 page rant about how he figured out the code. And I thought that was very revealing of the character. It's like, okay, I'm going to figure this out and then I'm going to hold on to it and I'm going to keep that knowledge until I can drop it on you. Um, and so that kind of, that kind of bugged me about him. So I think Norman ends up being my favorite character in the book. He's, he seems the most, uh, level headed amongst everybody, you know, throughout. Yeah. He has his moments, but for the most part, he's the one that's, that's constantly thinking of, uh, what can be done and acknowledging other people's strengths instead of just trying to play up his own. Whereas I think everyone else kind of, they try to play up their strengths without acknowledging other people's for the most part. And I think Norman's better about acknowledging other people's strengths and deferring to them when it's appropriate. No, and you're right, which is probably exactly how it was written because I, I, like I said in the beginning, I do believe that Norman's character is is us. We're the ones that don't understand necessarily what's going on around here, but he, you know, he does understand the danger of it when it starts getting to the emotional side, when that story starts coming about. And I don't know who my favorite is, I because I love the fact that Harry's kind of this know-it-all. I, I Probably Ted, honestly, was my favorite because of the fact he was just this excitable and loved everything about it and thought this was so cool, like he was a kid at heart, but... Um, in the end, it was probably Norman for myself, too. Though, uh, yeah, no, it probably was Norman, too. I, I will give, I mean, the movie and the book opened up the exact same right on this helicopter, which did you know that was Huey Lewis that was the <laughs> I was gonna, helicopter I was going to ask pilot? you about that. I was going to ask you if you noticed that. Yeah, I'm like, no <laughs> what? <laughs> the second person we see on screen besides Dustin Hoffman is Huey Lewis. <laughs> Huey Lewis in the news. Huey Lewis, yes, is the uh, helicopter pilot. But, you know, I did like uh, – for the major things that did get changed between book and movie, they, I think, kept as much as they could, knowing that, you know, the more of these 
movie film adaptations that we watch, you know that we got to cut these people out because we don't have the time for it in a movie. Um, we've got to cut this because budget's not going to allow for a huge ass squid. It's got to be fire, you know, things like that. I understand. Uh, you don't have to add the love interest. I hate, we hate that that happens. But for everything that I can understand why you cut it, I think you kept a lot of the really good points to get an idea of what this book was. I mean, this was definitely a closer adaptation than other ones, for me at least. Yeah. The the biggest thing is that when they started changing bigger things later on, like the way the manifestations happen, like the thing with the book, for example, I, oh, I yeah. thought that Forget was unnecessary that. To, to add that when in the, in the book it's just them talking about the movie, <laughs> 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. They're not talking about... Uh, the actual book itself, and they're certainly not, you know, talking about, oh, I never got past page 87 because it got too scared. Now there's hundreds and hundreds of copies of this book around that are blank after page 87. Oh, my gosh. I'm like, uh, no, that was really throwing cheap, it in your face. Yeah, yeah they're that treading was really into throwing cheap it in your face. movie territory yeah. at that point, and it, it wasn't necessary. Um, and, you know, so we have the book thing, but they don't have the shrimp. You know, so it's like, well, if you had time for the book, you had time for the shrimp, you know, <laughs> right? lose that book business and, and put the shrimp in instead. Um, or, you know, maybe show us the giant squid once instead of just a couple of times on the radar screen, uh, a vaguely right, the... giant squid shaped <laughs> radar blip. blip um, yes. Yeah. It's like, you know what? In the book, they saw the giant squid. They they knew it was there. They saw it. They didn't just see the eggs and then a radar screen. They saw it, and it it was there. Um, it's very you know it was very interesting. I felt the way that they did it. You know, especially when they had like the the smaller squid at first in the book. Um, it was interesting how nobody put it together, but the reader is intended to. How, you know, they talk about how in the movie, when he's fighting, when he's fighting the giant squid, he cuts off one of the legs. And mm-hmm. then they're talking about the, oh my gosh, there's this new species of squid outside. It's only got six legs. Well, yeah, because the, in the movie, they cut it off. Like, they cut it off. Yeah. <laughs> like, guys, guys, look right here. Look, <laughs> look, look. And you're, you're like screaming at the characters of the book because they're not quite, they're not putting it together. But as the reader, you are. And it's fantastic. I love yeah. little things like that, um, that, that, point you in the direction that the that the story is eventually going without being blatant and in your face about it uh, unlike the book thing in the movie which was just so blatant and in your face about it. it's like okay i get it guys mm-hmm. we, we get All it right. um so yeah in the in the movie I, I probably would have to say norman still my favorite character like i said he, he was a great character in the book and i thought hoffman made him even better in the film so yeah, I totally agree with you there. And I got to say, anybody that's listening, if you are aware of any kind of a fan fiction that is around, like, I would love, Eric, like you said, you know, the spaceship leading up to this point. Yeah, a prequel or, to or, this or, 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 yeah. or a sequel or something, you know, fig- finding out. I mean, it, because of the time travel aspect, a prequel could be a sequel or vice versa. <laughs> or vice versa. Right. I mean, there's just, there's so much that can be done or, or to really, like, come up with a story for a good tie-in like i'm gonna, i'm challenging myself now in my head like a good tie-in between sphere and andromeda strain and there's a way to do that you know i'm sure there is um so if anybody out there is aware of it though i would love to check out if there's any fan fiction i'd love to read up on that of uh of michael Crichton stuff period but specifically of this because there's so much more left out to the story that you know michael Crichton has somewhere in his archives tons and tons of notes on other ideas related to this genre of stuff 
Yeah, I agree. Another offshoot of these two stories would be fantastic. I mean, I'm just imagining this alien civilization out there somewhere. It's been around for, for billions of years. They're so advanced that they get their jollies by devising tests for other species. And their tests are, are often what we would consider cruel and inhumane because they're so advanced they don't see us as anything other than, you know, how we look at lesser animals. You know, we're rats or mice to them. That Just the way we would experiment on a rat or a mouse in a, a laboratory, that's how they think of us. So, yeah, hey, you know what? Let's, uh, let's send that sphere full of that deadly virus uh, over out to Earth and see how they deal with that. Let's just, let's just shoot it on over there and watch. Then, you know, later or before, depending on the uh, timeline, be like, hey, uh, hey, you guys got that sphere that makes things happen? Yeah? Okay, yeah, let's shoot it over that way. See see who grabs it. <laughs> see who grabs it. Who picks it up? What happens? Yeah. yeah. And I'm just, I'm imagining like a team of, <laughs> I'm imagining a teen, team of young, bored scientists on this alien civilization who are just coming up with these various spherical tests for other oh, alien civilizations. And, you know, the one guy's like, ah, this thing will kill just about anything. I'm going to send it there and see how they deal with it. And be like, oh, yeah, that's all you got? My thing makes their subconscious reality. What up it's, now? <laughs> it's their high school um, um, science, science fair, fair project. <laughs> that's what all of this yes. is, is their high school science fair project to some advanced alien race, and uh, they are getting graded depending on what happens. That, that makes sense, that makes sense in, in as far as, like, okay, here are the rules. It has to be this size. It has to be spherical in shape. It has to be this size, uh, or it has to be, you know, between these sizes, um, uh, and it has to uh, to mess with <laughs> some sensory uh, perception or something. You know, the, here are the parameters, and we can... Fill in the blanks from there. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Oh, so true. Oh, man. <laughs> Just the kids playing. Just, you know, teenage, you know, older teenagers, you know, like you said, high school level or like young college kids. It seems like the kind of stuff they'd come up with <laughs> to mess with other species so, that they right. think of as, as that much lesser than themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, I love it. I uh, like I said, this is a favorite book of mine. This is one of the books that I have read on multiple occasions. You know, unlike um, Rising Sun or Congo or anything like that, this and Andromeda Strain are two books that there have been multiple times where I've picked them up and I've read them, and they aren't. Uh, this one specifically is not as preachy or scientific of a book so it's an easier read you know it's mm -hmm. Jurassic Park's an amazing story but that's a long read where Sphere like I feel like I was really able to get through it quickly and um, I highly suggest reading this book uh, if, if I had to pick like a top three this is definitely in there which we'll have to do at some point Eric as we finish this up we'll have to pick our top like three movies and our top three books uh, just to see where we rate uh, compared to get you other what we liked and disliked yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely down to do that. And yeah, this uh, this one definitely could end up there in the top near the in, in the top of the rankings. Um, definitely, it, I know it's not my favorite because I've already uh, stated which one my favorite is. I think which mm -hmm. we'll be getting to here in the next few episodes, but um, definitely up there. 
The book is absolutely fantastic. If you've only seen the movie and you were meh about it, or even if you liked it, or you know what, even if you didn't like it, even if you watched the movie and said, eh, uh, read the book. Give it a ch- give it a chance, because like we said, it's a much easier read. Uh, Crichton really had his writing style down to an art at that point, where he could get that scientific knowledge out to you without being preachy about it, without being boring about it, um, and really tells a great story, too. And that's what I that's one of the things that I absolutely love about Crichton's work is that no two of these books are the same. You know, it's not formula formulatic at all. You know, unlike, you know, you can read a lot of authors who have written a lot of books um, that, okay, each story is a little different, but essentially you've got the same basic plot line running through them. A lot of these mystery authors and action adventure authors who essentially write the same book over and over again with slight changes, which can still be entertaining. I mean, (laughs) um, definitely. Yeah. But Crichton novels are not that. Every book you pick up is a different, unique story. And uh, this one is one of the most unique, and it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. So I uh, thank you, everybody, for listening in on this episode and uh, hope uh, you've enjoyed as much as we have. And definitely share with us if there is any fan fiction out there that you're aware of or anything at all. You can find us, obviously, on Facebook and Twitter. It's very simple. It's just at CrichtonCast. We are also on CrichtonCast.com. You can shoot us an email at info at CrichtonCast.com. We have a phone number you can call and leave a voicemail, and we will play it on one of our future episodes. It is 802-JURASSIC. Or if you just want to get right on CrichtonCast.com and click on Contact, there's a little form you can submit there and just send us a message. I don't care if you want to make it anonymous or not because you want to tell us about how much you hate Crichton and you don't want us to hate you, <laughs> then send it away. We we will take all, good, bad, and otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hey, give us a follow on the uh, Twitters and whatnot as well. I'm at Eric J. Dewey. I am at Stephen Mastin. So uh, I, I do have, before we wrap up, I do have one complaint oh. about Uh-oh. the novel itself. Are you going to complain about this anonymously, or what is, no, what's no. going on now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to put this out in the open because it, it bugs me when lay people do this, but Crichton should have known better. He refers at several times to poisonous snakes, not venomous, okay. poisonous. Poisonous. I'm like, you know what? They talked about eating the jellyfish. They talked about eating the shrimp. Never once did they talk about eating the snakes, so I don't need to know if they're poisonous or not. What I am concerned about is whether or not they're venomous. So, and it was repeated. It was a repeated error. And I was like, "Oh, come on, Michael! What? What's going on?" And it, that's because venomous is what happens because a snake injects the toxin to your prey versus poisonous. Is that what you're alluding to? Yes, poisonous versus is eating, when yes. you ingest something and it kills you. Venomous is when it bites you and it kills you. Right, and there is your difference. And I had not thought about that till you brought it up. Oh, that didn't bother me at all. Now it's going to bother sorry, me. Sorry, sorry about that. It's just one of those little things. Like I, I'm constantly correcting people on that, like who who don't know any better, and that's fine. And I'm like, I'm hoping to. I don't try to do it in a dickish way. I just like trying to like. Oh, actually, by the you know, here's how here's how that phraseology works. It's kind of like the uh, uh, implied and inferred uh, thing people get backwards quite often. Um, but for you know, uh, for someone of his knowledge and his research, I, I found it shocking uh, that it was such a blatant error and repeated. <laughs> and a repeated error at that point, yeah, to constantly be doing that. So, well, thanks. Now that's all right, though. It doesn't take away from it too much, but that is a, actually a very interesting error from somebody that's such a scientific mind and has done so much to 
not tell the difference between poisonous and venomous. So, hey, <laughs> nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> exactly. I, uh, it's it's one of those little things, you know. Sometimes I have to find a nit to pick at, and that was that was my one for this book. There we go. 